like change? I mean, think for a moment on how much you and I are subjected and exposed to change. Take clothing styles, for example. Clothing fads come and go with each generation, from bell-bottoms to parachute pants to flannel and plaid shirts all the way to Abercrombie and Fitch to polo to hipster clothing. If you don't know what that is, just keep moving on. With each generation, fashion styles project a different statement. They give off a different vibe. They express a different attitude of what our culture and our personal preferences are attracted to at a specific point in history. And if we're all honest, in the moment, we are typically proud and we think we're pretty cool or hip, depending on what your generation's vocab is, by the clothes we choose to wear. Kids, you might think your mom and dad are a bunch of fuddy-duddies today by the way they dress. Maybe the tube socks. Maybe the faded pit-stained t-shirts and turtlenecks need to be trashed. You might be right. But there was a time back in the day when old mom and dad were pretty cool in their own right. But we all know the truth. Give it 20, 30, 40 years or more. We often look back and are utterly embarrassed at ourselves, aren't we? We tend to hide those pictures of our youthful selves wondering, what was I thinking? And if you have an old yearbook and you're over 50 years old, I would encourage you to check that yearbook out this week as a fresh reminder to hear what I'm talking about. But it's not just clothing styles that change, is it? Hairstyles change from decade to decade. Sports team rankings can change almost week to week. Gas prices change, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, even overnight. And then there's the constant rise and fall of major companies that were once successful and popular. But now many of them are largely forgotten. Take, for example, the average American shopping mall today. Or, to make it more relevant, Central Mall in Fort Smith off Grand Avenue. Uh, scores of malls, just like our own, were once swarming with families and shoppers just like ourselves back in the 80s, the 90s, and into the early 2000s. But today, many malls, just like our Central Mall, are now barely scraping by to keep the lights on. They are barely scraping by to find someone to fill the vacant shopping stores. And with the rise of shoppers on the internet, what used to be a fun Saturday outing for millions across our land now is just simply a fuzzy memory of nostalgia. Just one generation later. And then there's the most obvious and humbling experience of change. We all get older. We all age. Some of us get gray hair. Some of us lose hair. And some of us have hair growing in places we wish we didn't have. And think how fickle and changing our feelings are as human beings. We can wake up in a bad mood on Monday and then in a great mood on Tuesday. Look at the relationships in our life. We, we can have folks that are our friend today become our enemy tomorrow. And if you remember kindergarten or you have children that are, how many times have your child come home and said they have a new best friend 
every week. And here we are now in 2022. And our culture is a changing culture. Our culture is changing its beliefs rapidly on gender, sex, and really morality in general. Anywhere from the progressive agenda of the LGBTQ plus community and the public school system to political strife within the U.S. government to your average secular university where professors teach from an anti-God worldview, it appears that the amount of change we are facing in our generation is picking up speed more than we realize with each passing year. And this rapid roller coaster change of beliefs, it's affecting how scores of people are viewing the very basic building blocks of society. Like the family. Like having confusion about defining what a woman is. Upholding and protecting the value of an unborn child. Important topics like these that would not have been debatable just a hundred years ago are now hitting the headlines and dividing communities, the workplace, school systems, and even families. For Christians living here in the West, be it in Europe or the United States, the way we are raising our children and discipling our church members means we must leave the ditches of doing what's right in our own eyes and return back to the center of level ground. Return back to the center of what it means to be a Christian, to build our lives with a biblical worldview that is distinctly Christian. Not distinctly American. Not distinctly whether we're white or black. Whether we are woke or racist. Whether we are Republican or Democrat. No, building our lives upon the biblical truth of the word of God that is distinctly Christian. Friends, that's very different than the other categories that I just mentioned. I'm talking about a worldview or the way we perceive our lives that drives us back to the Bible to find answers to life's most important questions. A worldview that is shaped by the Word of God with what we value, what we love, what we live for, what we make much of. If we're going to be the salt in light of the earth, as Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, knowing our Bibles better and learning what it means to follow Jesus more faithfully should be all the more important for each one of us. Otherwise, if we don't begin that right now, showing people the unchangeable purpose and character of God, showing people the unchanging, permanent, living and abiding word of God that can anchor their souls. Friends, this generation largely will be swept along the ferocious current of secularism and godless humanism. But the challenge before us is not just simply us evangelizing unbelievers who were raised in a non-religious home. This challenge goes for professing Christians who are raised in a Christian home and attend church regularly. 
people like many of us gathered in this building this morning. You see, even as professing Christians who have been raised in the Bible Belt, we can have our heads filled with Bible stories, our heads filled with Christian quotes, our heads filled with old Christian hymns, but our hearts not be changed by the God we say we love. Brothers and sisters, let me give a stern warning to us all. We can trick ourselves into thinking that checking a box on what we ought to do is the same thing as delighting in the God I want to serve. We can trick ourselves into thinking that checking a box on what I ought to do is the same thing as delighting in the God I want to serve. Parents and grandparents in here, if you want to see your children have a biblical understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, it starts with our example. Friends, the last two generations in America in the Bible Belt have gotten away with superficial, nominal Christianity. But this generation and the one to come ain't buying it. They can see right through the superficiality that it is. So parents, grandparents, before we can pass on the Christian faith to the next generation, we must ask ourselves, do I actually believe the stuff that I talk to my kids about? Is this real in my life? Is attending church and reading my Bible simply something I ought to do? Or is it something I delight in serving my God in doing? So friends, those two things are very different. What we ought to do is not necessarily the same thing as delighting in the God I want to serve. So how do we avoid this trap? How do we avoid this disconnection between our minds and our hearts when it comes to loving the Lord from the very depths of who we are? Well, we have to first identify what those landmines are, right? We have to ponder the goodness of God and the gospel and identify what those landmines are in our lives that could be quenching and dampening our love for the Lord. One of the greatest trials for a Christian living in a prosperous country like ourselves is the countless distractions that are all around us. Alluring, seductive, and attractive distractions that are screaming for our heart's affections, are things that can be good gifts from God, that our sinful hearts can turn into little gods called idols. You might call these creaturely props. You know what they are. They're earthly comforts that we lean on, that we think will bring lasting fulfillment to our lives. But give it enough time, we realize they cannot strengthen our soul. They are like a velvet ring box that when you open it, there is no diamond ring to be found. They leave us empty and they leave us dissatisfied. Do you remember Jesus' parable, the four soils? Jesus said in Mark 4, verses 18 to 19, and others are the ones who were sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Friends, from the testimony of Scripture, 
from the annals of human history and from our own personal life experiences, we know that things like money, wealth, toys, cars, trucks, boats, houses, entertainment, physical beauty, popularity, marriage, raising children, graduate degrees, hunting, video games, sports, hobbies, and all our stuff, they do not last. Even Johnny Cash once said, it's all fleeting. As fame is fleeting, so are all the trappings of fame fleeting. The money, the clothes, even the furniture. Friends, we should not expect from things or people what we can only get from God himself. We should not expect from things or people what we can only get from God himself. Friends, God knows our frame. He knows we are weak. He knows that we are but dust. And God knows our hearts and how we are prone to hope in things that are vain and will not last. And yet at the same time, Living in this world where change is inevitable, God loves us so much that he promises to change us in order for us to trust and delight in him. He is the perfect and praiseworthy God who does not change. This God has told us in his word who we should hope in while living in a world of change, what we should live for while we live in a world of change, how we can experience the abundant life by putting our focus on that which lasts forever. If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 500. And 68, Ephesians chapter 3. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll begin a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. So feel free to begin reading Nehemiah. It's about 13 chapters. And if you're like, I have no clue of the context, read the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. So 2 Chronicles 36. And then you got the whole book of Ezra to pick up on. And if you read those two, you'll be in good footing when we get into Nehemiah next week. So that's next week, Lord willing. But this morning, we're going to look at two verses in a standalone sermon at the very end of Ephesians 3. Specifically, we're going to look at Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21. These two verses are packaged in a brief doxology. If you're not familiar with that word or you're new to church, it simply means a praise to God. So I'm going to just see if you're paying attention. What's the doxology? There we go. A beautiful ascription of praise to God. It's a word of praise that should also instruct us as the people of God on what our lives should be aiming towards. Please follow with me. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is writing to believers or followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived in and around the city of Ephesus. You can see that in Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 2. And Paul does what he typically does in other letters in the New Testament, like Colossians and Romans. He starts off in the opening chapters like a contractor would in building a new house. He lays a foundation before he can build the rest of the house. He lays out in the first opening chapters of these letters the foundation of sound doctrine. Or you could say healthy, good-for-your-soul teaching. In other words, he teaches sound doctrine or sound instruction that is in accordance with the gospel so that their faith is rooted and grounded in truth and not in error. That their faith would be anchored in the truth of God that does not change, even if our world does. In the midst of a culture that was trying to shape and mold the Ephesian believers, it's the same type of ferocious winds that we face today as Christians here even in America. And then he gives them the therefore, kind of hinge where the book changes in chapter 4, verse 1. And when you read like Romans 12, verse 1, or Colossians 3, or Ephesians 4, he gives the therefore. What is the there, therefore? He's basically about to say, now in light of everything that I just taught you about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, therefore live your life in consistency with the faith you profess to have. And that's what he does in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He encourages them and he teaches them how to live out that faith in virtually every sphere of life. So to review the sound doctrine, before he gets to Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, that he lays forth at the beginning, here's a summary. In Ephesians chapter 1, he spends time showing all the spiritual blessings of what God has done for us in Christ. Stretching all the way back from before the world began, and pinpointing the day they became a Christian, Paul unfolds, he unlocks the treasure chest of the riches of God's grace towards us in Christ. Notice how he describes some of these riches. He says, believers have been chosen in Christ and predestined for adoption as sons and daughters of God. That they've been redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been indwelt, they've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment of our future inheritance in heaven. That's Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. And then he ends chapter 1 with a prayer of intercession. And he's asking the Lord to give these Christians a deeper understanding of who he is. To illuminate, to enlighten their eyes that they might know the hope that we have in Christ. That our hope would be set 
on the king who is both our savior and our Lord. He is also the head of the church and the Lord of all the universe. And then in chapter 2, Paul takes us back. He goes back in time and shows us those Kodak pictures we don't want anyone to see about our past, who we all once were before we came to know the Lord. He reminds the Ephesian believers in us today as well of our spiritual obituary and our shameful life before we knew the Lord. Worse than bad hairdos from the 80s, Worse than cheesy clothes you wore in high school, he instead reminds them as well as us of how wicked, how estranged, how sinful, how deaf, and how lost we were before we came to know the Lord. And Paul does this in the first three opening verses of chapter 2 by painting this grim picture of our depravity before him. This is what he says in verse 1, we're spiritually dead and unresponsive to divine truth. Verse 2, we're deceived by the demonic realm. Verse 3, we deserve eternal destruction under God's wrath, and we were known as being devoted to dead works with filthy and disobedient hearts. And yet, beginning in Ephesians 2, verse 4, we begin reading those two glorious words that every Christian should never get over. But God. But God. Which is really Paul's way of saying, though your sins are many, his mercy is infinitely more. Friends, let's just have a wonderful, enjoyable time marinating our soul on this passage again. Go to Ephesians 2. Let's, let's look at it together. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. Follow with me, and I want you to hear afresh of the riches of God's mercy to us in Christ. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then in the latter chapter, or latter half of chapter 2, 
spilling over into the beginning of chapter 3, Paul begins to expand the Ephesians believers' understanding of what God's doing in the world, what God's doing in rescuing sinners, what God's doing in saving spiritually dead people like us. Paul moves on. He tells them that God is constructing a temple. He is constructing a dwelling place for his presence to abide. But friends, this is not some new central mall he's talking about. This is not some church building necessarily on Chag Holly Boulevard we hope to see one day built. No, friends, this is a spiritual temple made up of souls whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth. Friends, these souls, these precious souls that God, by his Spirit, is building up into a glorious, eschatological, eternal, beautiful temple is the people of God, the church, the bride of God of Christ, Ephesians 5 says. These are the people that Paul painstakingly writes to and writes about in virtually all his New Testament letters. Who are these people? The saints, the called, the beloved, sons and daughters of the Most High. Christ's beloved bride, his blood-bought and spirit-filled people. Friends, this is the church. This is whom God is showing off to this dark and ever-changing world that is deeply confused about the meaning of life. Friends, the church are a people who have been called out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light by his grace. The church is a people gathered from all over the globe and united as one through their common faith in Jesus. And then he instructs the Ephesians that God is saving a people for himself, listen church, that is made up of both Jew and Gentile and bringing them together as one new man, one body indwelt by the one and the same Spirit. And then this theme carries over in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. And Paul then gives a second intercessory prayer. Like a faithful and caring pastor would pray for his church, Paul is asking the Lord to grant the Ephesians strength, power, and might so that they might know Jesus Christ personally and experientially that surpasses a mere head knowledge. What's the overarching reason that he's been plowing the depths on the first three chapters of Ephesians? Why is Paul praying in chapter one, praying in chapter three? What end, what goal, what does he want for Christ's bride? Looking at Ephesians 3 verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? It's the abundant life. It's life with God. It's a life led by God's Spirit. 
a life filled by God's Spirit, a life of boldness and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a life of joy, a life of singing, a life of gratitude back to God. Friends, the abundant life is not the perfect life, but it is the life where God in Christ is making you perfect like him. A life filled with the fullness of God is a life of faith, a life of hope, and a life of love to the glory of God. Ordinary men, ordinary women, ordinary boys and girls with all their sins, all their sufferings, and all their challenges, all their quirky and prickly personalities are looking to Jesus and who are bearing the beautiful supernatural fruit of the Spirit of God from their life. Lives that are being conformed to the person and likeness of Jesus, who is the author of life himself. So, if you're taking notes, what is the main idea of our sermon today? I have a f- one point, one main idea, and a few subpoints. Here's your main idea God's glory extracts praise from God's people. God's glory extracts praise from God's people. God's glory extracts. It draws out. It elicits. It attracts praise from God's people. Like a nurse pricking our fingers to draw blood at the doctor's office, when God's people are pricked, they bleed praise to God. This is precisely and exactly what Paul is doing at the end of Ephesians 3. This is a doxology. In other words, friends, theology should always lead to doxology. We don't want dead, big head religion. We want heads filled with truth and hearts that are bursting with praise to God. Friends, he is praising God for who he is. He is praising God for what he has done. He is praising God for what he has promised yet to do. And this is what Paul is modeling for us, like a faithful pastor here at the end of Ephesians 3. Look closely again at verse 21. To him, he's getting our eyes off ourselves. He's getting our eyes off of Ephesus. He's getting our eyes off of all the muck and mire of culture. He says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Friends, don't miss what he's doing. Paul spends not three words, not three verses, three chapters plowing the depths of God's riches towards us in Christ. And what does he talk about? He doesn't talk about us. Not primarily. He doesn't talk about ten things you need to do to please me with your life. Ten ways to get your marriage resurrected. Ten ways to raise your children to the glory of God. He's not focused on that. He's not looking to give you your easiest and most comfortable life now. He's saying, get your eyes on your God. Get your eyes off yourself. 
Don't view me as some box to check off, but a person to know. Friends, he spends verse after verse, line after line, describing not how great we are, not how strong we are, not how beautiful we are, not how consistent we are, not how reliable we are, not how wonderful we are. No, it's the total opposite. Paul pours out his heart, sweating as he's writing this thing to show the steadfast of the Lord endures. The mercies of the Lord endures. The power and might of our Lord who can raise the dead to life is available to you. Paul spends three chapters pouring out his heart as he was suffering for them through his ministry. And how does he end this section? How does he wrap up the bow? Before he moves from exposition to application, what is his final word? Paul points them, and he points us, to our all-powerful God who is able to do much more than you and I could ever realize. He points us to a God he can do with one move of his finger that we could not do in a lifetime. Friends, a good question for all of us to ask this morning is this, is the chief purpose of my life to see God be made much of? Or is the chief purpose of my life to make much of me? Is the chief purpose of my life to make much of God and point others to make much of God? Or is it simply week in and week out how I can make much of myself? Friends, we could even ask the question that I mentioned in the main point earlier. Does God's glory extract praise back to him from your life? Does God's glory draw out praise to God in your life? Well, then you got to ask the question, what is God's glory? Let me illustrate it first this way. I've met a few people in my life who have shared with me that they have never seen with their own eyes or touched with their own hands the ocean. They've only seen it in movies or pictures. For me personally, I grew up by the beach. I was a beach bum. I did that for a living for a few weeks in summertime. I'm not proud of it, but hey, there's truth in advertising. I've lived near the beach for almost 20 years of my life. I cannot fathom personally having never seen the ocean. It's just a part of who I am. I've got moles and freckles to prove it. But imagine someone who lived in a desert land who didn't have TV or the internet or National Geographic to look at a magazine and had never even heard of the ocean. You blindfolded them, put them on a plane, dropped them off on a sandy beach in the Caribbean, you put a sweet tea in their hand, because you're hoping they're like sweet tea, and you remove the blindfold. How do you think they would respond? What do you think would cross their mind? They would be speechless. They would be lost for words. Their heart beating fast, looking left, looking right, wondering how they got here and why this massive bathtub is out here in the middle of nowhere. 
The only thing they had ever seen with a body of water is a cup to drink out of. They could never conceive living in a desert land actually swimming in a body of water. Even more than that, not being able to even put your arms around shore to shore. Friends, beholding God's glory is much of the same way. Beholding God's glory is not something you and I can fully wrap our tiny, finite minds around. You see, the day you become a Christian is not the end of the journey in beholding God's glory. Friends, it's the beginning. That's why the Christian life, with all its challenges and problems, is still the abundant life. You are tasting little bit by little bit and seeing little bit by little bit that the Lord is good. Friends, the day you become a Christian is the first day you begin what will last for eternity, and that is searching out God's glory to us in Christ. So what is God's glory? Here's a simple definition. God's glory is the value and worth of his greatness. God's glory is the value and worth of his greatness. God's glory is the sum total of all who he is. His attributes, his character, his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his love, his justice, his holiness, his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence, and many more things that you could talk to Greg about who's in seminary studying Christology. Back to the sermon. God's glory is when his beautiful perfections are seen, savored, and celebrated by his creation. You know how many times we've heard stuff like this? Well, I'll give God the glory. Give God the glory. You know, Tebow in the fourth quarter. You know, flashback 20 years ago. Here we go. Whether it's pounding the chest, looking up to heaven after a home run, we all have our little things. We've heard people say, to God be the glory. And don't praise me, praise God. But sometimes we don't even know what we're talking about. What are we doing when we say, God gets the glory. What we are doing is we are saying, God may have used me, but make much of him. God may have used that pastor in your life, but make much of him. God may use you, mom, in your children's life, but make sure you tell your children, make much of him. God may use this sermon in your life, and use me as one puny little instrument to do it. But at the end of the day, when you put your head on that pillow, make much of him. That is giving God glory. Friends, that is the heart posture that should be true of all of us. Anytime God uses us, anytime someone comes up to us and says, thank you, I so appreciate you, you're hospitable, you're kind, you're gentle, you're meek, you're loving, you're self-control, all these things, and you go, well, sounds like the Holy Spirit. God gets the glory. Friends, when we acknowledge God's work in other people's life, God gets glory. So we ought to be an encouraging church. We ought to be detectives of God's grace, encouraging our brothers and sisters when we see God's Spirit at work, and then when we receive it, we say, thank you. May God get the glory. Thank you. May God get the glory. Friends, that just begs the question then. 
How is God showing off his glory through your life? How have you and I tried to be glory thieves, even just this past week? Maybe let's zoom it out more. What is God doing, not merely through my life, to show off his glory, but what is God doing to show off his glory throughout the world? What is Paul doing in praising God in this doxology? What should we as Christians do? to magnify and glorify and celebrate the value and worth of God. Here's your two applications, okay? It's going to be drawn right from the text. Number one, don't limit God's work of grace in your life. Don't limit God's work of grace in your life. Number two, decide now to make Jesus and the church the focal point of your life. Decide now to make Jesus and the church the focal point of your life. Let's look at that first one together. Don't limit God's work of grace in your life. Paul says in Ephesians 3, look with me in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, did you catch the last phrase here? According to the power at work, within us. You want to know how someone's marriage is doing? Or how it's going? Listen to how they talk to their spouse face to face and listen how they talk about their spouse when their spouse isn't around. You want to know how a child's relationship is going with their mom or dad? Listen to how they talk to their mom or dad face to face. And listen to how they talk about their mom and dad when they're not around. You want to know one way you can discover someone's relationship to God and what it's like? Listen to how they pray to him. Listen to how they pray to him. And specifically, listen to what they pray to him. So here in verse 20, how does Paul pray to God? Well, he describes him, did you catch that? As the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Uh, simply put, Paul says, do not put limits. Don't put a seatbelt on what God can do through your life. Paul prays to the God that he believes from his core can do the humanly impossible. He prays to the God he believes who is not restrained by human limitations. Brothers and sisters, here's a really good challenge that comes off of verse 20. Before you and I pray at the dinner table, in your Bible studies, at the golf course, in the pulpit, we should pause and think to whom am I praying to? Whom am I praying to? Frivolous, trite, flippant, casual, joking, mindless praying does not bring God glory. When we pray like that, 
we are reflecting we have a very small and weak view of God. Friends, does your tone and attitude in prayer reflect you are praying to the Almighty, to the El Shaddai? Do you pray to God and believe as if he can actually do way beyond our human comprehension? You see, in this form of a doxology, Paul is also instructing. He is teaching us with this challenge in our own prayer life. Do not put God in a box like a tamed animal. Friends, we should never limit what God can do. He is the limitless God. We must remind ourselves of this every week, right? It's one of the reasons why we need to be gathered together as Christians every Sunday. Because our tank empties out on truth and we have a lot of something else filling us up. We need truth to remind us how big and mighty and gracious and capable our God is. How big is he? Let me remind you, the Lord spoke the world into existence by his very word. The Lord opened the womb of barren women all throughout redemptive history. Take Abraham and Sarah. The Lord said they would have a child in their great-grandparents' years. And how did they respond? They laughed. Now, those of you who are grandparents, if God told you this morning that you were about to expect a child in nine months, you'd probably fall back and pass out, and we'd have to get Dr. Chains on you real quick. Why did they laugh? It wasn't because God was funny. It's because it blew any human conception they had, any limitations they were putting on God, and God says, watch me. I'm going to form a nation through a barren woman's tomb and an old man. Watch me. The Lord can speak through a donkey. The Lord can tell ravens to feed the prophet Elijah. The Lord can cast off shackles from a prisoner in Peter, open prison doors, and Peter escapes scot-free. Listen, the Lord can lead out a whole nation out of a pagan king's Rule and the Lord can send out a remnant of people from a dying church, from godless leadership to green pastures to a biblical church. He is able. He can harden people's hearts. He can open people's hearts. He can raise the dead. He can save the lost. So much that Spurgeon, who was a slobbering five point Calvinist as your pastor is, says, Lord, save the elect and Lord, elect some more. Friends, that's what evangelism will look like. You're not caring that much about what your neighbors think. You don't care that much if you're going to get persecuted in your workplace. Why? Because God's on your side. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. It's not because we're tough. It's not because we have all the answers. It's because we're indwelt by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Friends, that's a part of living the abundant life. God has already proven to us how just and merciful he is and how mighty he is through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're not a Christian, 
and you've already kind of gotten exhausted from living this life that just keeps changing. You're getting older, hair's coming out, you wish hair didn't grow, the malls aren't getting better, money's not getting better, your job's not getting better. These are God's sirens to say, wake up, look to me, I don't change. And my love endures forever. Friends, if you want to know what it means to have the abundant life, it starts with knowing who Jesus is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and his incarnation is the glory of the invisible God. He came being born of a virgin, lived a perfect life of praise and trust to his Father. He died on the cross for the sins of all of us who would turn from our sins and trust him. And he was raised from the dead, and he promises to come back to judge us, to judge those who have not put their trust in him, and to save his bride and take them home with him. Friends, turn from your sins and trust in him and begin to experience the abundant life you were made to live. Now, to the members of CCBC, as you have thought about Ephesians 3.20 and some of the things that we've been seeing, has your prayer life felt dull and stunted lately? Has your prayer life felt dull and stunted lately? If it has, I would encourage each one of us to reread through books of the Bible like Genesis and the Exodus. Now, whether it's the creation account, or God making promises to form a nation, or God sustaining his wandering people in the wilderness. Or if you read the minor prophets and the major prophets, you will see basically the same theme over and over again. There's only one true and living God, and all the so-called gods of the nations are going to lose. And then read the Gospels and the mind-blowing power of God to bring about the birth of our Savior through a virgin. Think about the book of Acts. Who does Jesus use to turn the world upside down? The most brilliant scholars? The most educated and well-seasoned men? No, they were common and uneducated men whom the Lord used by his Spirit to turn the world upside down. Friends, when you read the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to the end, from cover to cover, every single person who has a humble and teachable and prayerful heart will come to the same conclusion. You know what that conclusion is? Nothing is impossible with our God. Nothing is impossible for Him. Brothers and sisters, we should weekly challenge one another, praying with one another and for one another, big prayers to our big God. And to put it simply, we should take God at his word, pray big prayers that are consistent with faithful interpretation of scripture and wait patiently on the Lord to act. David Clarkson once wrote, quote, it is gross atheism to doubt God's power. He is able to do all things. Omnipotence has no bounds but his will. Faith seldom questions God's power, but it doubts whether he is willing. But he is willing as he is able. Sinclair Ferguson encourages us in our prayers when he writes, quote, Our prayers cannot stretch to the limits of what God is able to do. Our ability to ask, indeed our ability to conceive what we might ask, 
cannot stretch to the limits of what God can actually accomplish. And then the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he challenges us. He says, quote, bring your most daring, I, I can't really do the British accent, maybe get John after the service, but bring your most daring petitions. Never mind, forget it. Bring your most impossible request. Add others to them. Let the whole church join together in their wildest desires and demands. There is no danger of exceeding the limit. His power is beyond all that we could ever ask. The greatest sin of every Christian and of the Christian church in general is to limit the eternal, absolute power of God to the measure of our own minds and concepts and understandings. Brothers and sisters, of all the things that you and I are praying for in our lives, do you grasp to some degree God's ability to do infinitely better and greater than even those prayers? Let me ask you a question. Do you struggle with some kind of besetting sin that you don't think God could ever help you overcome? Is there a particular part of your life that follows you around kind of like an unwanted shadow and you feel, well, I'll just die with this. It doesn't matter. I've tried everything in the books. It's just never going to, I'm never going to get better. I'm never going to be making progress in this area. What is that thing right now? Fill in that blank. What kind of fear, what kind of sin, what, what kind of hidden insecurity that you think God can never work through to give you gradual victory over? Let me give you an example. If you struggle with the fear of man, pray that God would empower you to be bold and overcome being a people pleaser. If you struggle with jealousy and de- discontentment and anxiety, pray that God would empower you to be content with his provision and happy for others. If you struggle to have joy in raising your kids, pray that God would empower you towards perseverance and that God would enable you to learn how to be thankful for the privilege of being a parent that images something of God's care for you and through you to your children. If you struggle with lust, greed, or some other addiction, Pray that God would give you a pure heart, desires with self-control, and a heart that loves what God loves, and a heart that hates what God hates. Friends, verse 20 is challenging us. He's working in his people, and he can do well beyond even what we ask him to do in us. You know, one easy application that I think we all need to help each other with is this. We need to scrub one word from most of our sentences when it comes to things that we say about serving the Lord. That word would be never. Never. When it comes to your obedience to God, how many of us have said something like this before? I would never fill in the blank. That's out of my comfort zone. I'll never do that. I could never preach a sermon. I could never lead a men's or women's Bible study. I could never pray in public. I could never work with kids in children's ministry. I could never disciple or mentor another believer. I could never be a spiritual leader in my home. 
I could never plant a church. I could never memorize scripture. I could never evangelize my neighbors. I could never leave my hometown. I could never leave my current job. I could never leave Arkansas or Oklahoma. Friends, what is your I could never? You know what I've learned in following Jesus? Never say never. Friends, how recently have you been telling God something you could never do for him? That you'll never overcome some particular fear or sin or opportunity to serve him. Friends, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, you know that true for yourself. I would never live there. I would never do that. And I think you've probably followed Jesus long enough that you've stopped saying that. Encourage other believers to never tell God, never. God is in the business of smashing our I could nevers and teaching us that he is able to work in us and through us beyond our imagination. This past week, Matt Litchford and I went over to McAllister's, got some lunch, good time with Matt. He asked me a question. Hey, Blake, how did you get into ministry? Well, as I was eating my Savannah Cobb salad, maybe it's from where I'm from, but I was eating it. As I began recounting my story, my mind went back to years and years of shyness. Years of social anxiety when my family moved to a new church, a new school, a new town, a new whatever. Fears in public speaking, difficulties with reading comprehension, and not to mention my own past sin, my own past foolishness. And as I was recounting the story and I was talking about God put that person in my life at this season and it got me there. This person challenged me in my life and I didn't even know I needed to be challenged. And as I was done telling the story, I kind of looked back and I looked at Matt and I'm like, other than giving some basic principles, all I can say was, God's grace is amazing. Friends, if you look back on your life, from the time of your conversion to where he has you today, that should be the boast of all of us. By the grace of God, I am what I am. The Lord used you, brother. The Lord used you, sister. By the grace of God. I am what I am. Friends, if I could be any encouragement to you, if you knew more of my testimony and more of where the God, our God's brought me, maybe it would give you encouragement and hope that he can work through and in any of you. His grace is so much greater than we understand. And friends, if you're a member of this church, we should make it a custom here as a church to gather regularly. So if you're not here on Sunday nights regularly to pray with our church, Friends, come back. If your prayer life has been stunted, if your prayer life feels weak, the way we grow in our prayer life is praying with one another. Friends, when we pray big prayers to God, God often answers in big ways that amazes his church as a whole. In this doxology, then Paul teaches us not only that we should not limit God's work of grace in our life, but he also shows us that we should be prioritizing something as preeminent in our life, which leads to point number two, decide now to make Jesus in the church the focal point of your life. I'm not an expertise when it comes to home decorating. I know good, good taste and good style when I see it, but 
when you walk into the average living room of someone's house, you can discover in the first few minutes what the main attraction is for the living room. Home decorators call this the focal point. It's what all the furniture is being angled towards and situated around in the room. The focal point could be a TV, could be a table, could be a glass vase. Depending on whatever that person or that family's focal point is, everything else is situated around it. Well, during the Protestant Reformation, one of the key things that happened when they protested against Rome is that the Mass or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist was no longer front and center because of their faulty understanding of what it conveyed. When Christians read their Bible and understood justification by faith alone and Christ alone, it was the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of God's word that saved sinners, not the Eucharist. So guess what became front and center? The pulpit. Everything in the church's auditorium was pointing to and around the pulpit. It was the focal point of the church. Friends, what is the focal point of your life today? If someone were to follow you around and they created their own reality TV show of Ian Chain or Grant Trotter or whomever, what would they say is the centerpiece of your affections, the focal point of your priorities, the one relationship that affects all the other relationships? Would it be the glory of God? Would it be Christ Jesus? Or would it be something else? You see, God calls all of us to live for his glory wherever he's got us now. So if you're a teacher, be a teacher for the glory of God. If you're a dentist, be a dentist for the glory of God. If you're a plumber, hairstylist, administrator, doctor, accountant, Bible teacher, elder, secretary, or stay-at-home parent, do everything to make much of God. Friends, we do that by good works that commend the gospel as we let our light shine before men. But friends, Paul says the focal point of a Christian's life is even more narrow than all those things. According to Ephesians 3, how is God showing off his glory in the world? How do we as Christians celebrate and magnify the glory of God? We put the kingdom of God first, not second, not third. And how do we do that? Well, we seek to please Jesus in all our life, and we seek to love and build up his church. You see, Jesus and his church are inextricably linked. In Ephesians 1, Christ is called the head of his body, the church. In Ephesians 5, Christ is described as one with his bride, the church. Jesus loves his church. He died for his church. He washes his church through the cleansing and sanctifying power of the Spirit through his word. And friends, one of the clearest ways of whether or not we love Jesus is by looking at how much we love Jesus' bride, the church. One author put it this way, the closer you are to the Lord, the closer you will be to other believers. The church is God's masterpiece. The church is God's workmanship. The church is God's artwork. He's showing off 
to the heavenly places? Friends, a good question then that we should all ask ourselves, if that's how God is displaying his glory through Jesus Christ and the church, do you delight in what God is doing through Christ's church here at CCBC? Do you delight in the bride of Christ in what God is doing in his bride here at CCBC? How are you prioritizing your days, your weeks, your months to be a blessing to others to build up the bride of Christ here? What is your schedule? What is your wallet? What is the depth of your friendships with others here revealing about your love for Jesus' people? Donald Whitney really strikes us to the core when he says this, God doesn't keep the world turning so that we can do more business, make more money, buy more things. Rather, God keeps the planet in motion because he has not finished the work of the church. That is, building the kingdom of his son. Because this is God's purpose, it ought to be ours as well. And if we'll see it for what it is, we will delight in it, just as God does. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What did Jesus say when he was on earth? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, that means that Jesus is going to present his bride to himself without spot or wrinkle in splendor and beauty and in holiness. When Jesus looks his bride in the eyes, he's going to be satisfied with what he sees. How do we know that? As Greg read earlier from the doxology in Jude, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Friends, if you're in here today and you feel like you're about to walk away from the faith, you feel like there's no way God could continue to love you for all the failures in your parenting, the failures in your marriage, your failures to keep looking at wrong things on the internet. Friends, think not. Though your sins and my sins are many, his mercy is more. He is able to cleanse us and to preserve us and present us on that last day. And he is able because he's promised that mission will be fulfilled. In the first generation, in this generation, and every generation to come until Christ comes back. Friends, did you notice that last phrase there, forever and ever? Throughout all generation, forever and ever? That's why I spent the whole intro on change. Nothing in our life will stay the same except one thing. Our relationship with Jesus Christ. In heaven, there will be no marriage. In heaven, there will be no children or grandchildren. In heaven, you won't have the same vocation you have right now. But in Christ, we are his bride, and we are his bride forever and ever. 
Members of CCBC, as your pastor, I want to affirm God's grace in your life. Your faithfulness to attend church regularly, your faithfulness to give generously, and your humility to serve and meet whatever needs that we have. Friends, God is doing a special work in our midst. God is doing a special work in, his, in, this, in our midst. Friends, from our perspective, it might feel slow, hard, uncertain, messy, and uncomfortable being in this church. It might seem numerical growth has been very small up to this point in our church's life. But never forget this. God does not have the same metrics as we do. He is always doing infinitely more in the world and in our lives than we can see immediately with our eyes. Keep plodding along. He is faithful. He loves his bride and he will build his church. Pray big prayers because we serve a big God who will answer. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. After pinning this doxology, look in verse 21. Paul ends this phrase, or this praise rather, with a familiar word for many of us. Amen, or amen, depending on your background. What does amen mean? Think about it for a minute. What does amen mean? We've just spent three chapters plowing the depths, going to this doxology, and he ends with amen. Amen was a custom, or a word used as a custom, passed on from the synagogues to the Christian churches. When after someone read scripture or prayed, the others in the congregation responded with amen, and really was another way of saying, that's a true, trustworthy statement. That's true. Preach it, brother. Amen, sister. At CCBC, our desire is that we would be a gospel-preaching, gospel-believing, and gospel-obeying church. We aim to be a church that sings God's praises and utters prayers that show off a big God that we can trust. But we should also not be shy or timid. We should be an amening kind of church. So let's do a little exercise to conclude the sermon, shall we? I'll give a statement, and you're going to respond with a hearty amen. Here we go. When truth is preached from this pulpit, this place should erupt with When you agree with a prayer that is prayed from the pulpit, this place should erupt with Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the God who is able. Father, stop our tongues when we say we could never. I could never, we as a church could never. Stop us in our tracks. Reveal our unbelief. Teach us how to put that to death and look to you. 
Father, we do pray here at CCBC that you would blow our minds, that you would destroy the little boxes, the little tamed cages we've put you in. Lord, teach us how to pray big prayers in consistency with Scripture because you are a big God who can do infinitely beyond what we can ask or think. Lord, we pray that CCBC and other gospel-preaching churches in this community would truly be a bride that is looking more and more like her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we love you. We praise you for your work of grace in our life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.